So, Mark. Yes? This movie is very specifically set in the aftermath of the Cold War. It's so extremely set in the aftermath of the Cold War that it hurts. <laughs> I mean, it's acknowledged in text when Jim Phelps, the John Voight character, is explaining why Henry Zerny's character would be the villain. He's saying, oh yeah, you know, you're this like functionary in an intelligence agency and now the Cold War is over and the president's not doing what you're saying so you get mad about it. Like, this is about, or at least purportedly about at times, intelligent agents figuring out who they are after the Cold War. If anyone mourned the loss of the Cold War, it was Hollywood. Well, it's nice to have a very easy villain and like, I think growing up in the War on Terror like we did, you know, it's nicer to have a go-to villain you can vaguely hint at that doesn't carry like uncomfortable like racial stereotypes as well. I mean, they other stereotypes. The racial stereotypes <laughs> the are there, but just against white people, so they're less uncomfortable. They, yeah, they're less uncomfortable, and it's like this guy, like I don't know, wears a heavy coat and drinks vodka. Well, we're 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 coming back. We're coming back. That's true. We're coming back. <laughs> I was actually gonna. That's one of the main things I was going to talk about. Is I think we've almost fully circled back because they're white. <laughs> like we had the war on terror moment. Then people are like, oh. It feels really bad when you're sitting in the audience in Iron Man and you speak the language of the terrorists and understand what they're saying. And one, it's poorly written. And two, it's like an uncomfortable feeling. So we've moved back to, as seen in the movie Spy, vague Eastern Europeans with no specifics. I was also just listening to your episode on Spy, like yesterday. (laughs) Mark, it feels like you're talking about the Sokovians. (laughs) I love made-up Eastern European countries in movies. I don't don't know that you know, Mark. Avengers 2, Age of Ultron, the finale of it is set in this vague country called Sokovia. And the disaster there, the result of the big battle, leads to the Sokovia Accords, which leads to the Civil War in Captain America Civil War. Made-up European countries are so important to Marvel. I feel like that's where I first learned about them. I use, when I'm teaching uh, world history, and sometimes I want to take events and like have students talk through what people should do, and I remove the real country names so that they don't try to go just based on what they think happened. And the names I always throw in are made-up Marvel countries in Eastern that's Europe. <laughs> it's always Latveria and Simcaria and Sokovia and all those places. Simcardia? Is that... Simkaria. S-Y-M-K-A-R-I-A. Oh. It's just like, someone was just looking around the room at items. <laughs> no, this was like early 90s. That's where the Silver Sable is from. Oh. Coffee Mugistan. You know, in the 70s, the Spider-Man writers did buy a box of animal flashcards and work their way through creating villains. Comic books are great. They're so good. I don't read them. They're great. <laughs> but anyway, Mark, I was wondering if you have any other favorite examples of movies from this window where the Cold War is over, 9-11 hasn't happened yet, and the U.S. and Hollywood aren't really sure who the villains are anymore. I mean, I think the interesting thing is that the villain just becomes so vague. And I remember watching on TV as a child, so not understanding, the film Air Force One, and I just looked it up, and I was honestly surprised that the people attacking the plane were from a real country but they picked a country that americans wouldn't really know is a real country what country kazakhstan oh Oh, sure (laughs) borat had not come out yet i think that's who it is 
it's interesting because the Americans and Russians kind of work together at one point in the movie. I mean, that's the weird thing that people were really wrestling with. They were like, are we not just not fighting? Are we friends now? Frenemies. Which we saw how that turned out. Yeah. I mean, the movie that I think of most strongly with this period, besides Mission Impossible, is Star Trek VI. Interesting. Which is the undiscovered country and is absolutely the Star Trek version of this issue. It's 1991, so like Next Generation is well underway, and one of the big shocks of the Next Generation cast is that you have Worf on board the Enterprise. And Undiscovered Country is kind of the bridge. It's the movie about the Federation and the Klingons coming to peace with one another. And the whole thing has this very end of the Cold War, like, I guess we're establishing full diplomatic relations with the evil empire, and we're just going to, like, work together and be cool now? I mean, it was a very dramatic shift that it's not a surprise that dealing with that showed up in other genres besides the political thriller. It was the end of history! (laughs) My god. Do you listen to If Books Could Kill? I do. Great episode. See, I thought of that, and then, like, I feel like the other way we see this most often is in all the movies that are just about, like, the sort of ennui of the United States in the period where it's like, okay, uh, now what? We have no grand national mission and you wind up with movies like American Beauty or I even feel this kind of an eyes wide shut, the sense of like, where is the big national mission? We're a little bit lost. It's all a little bit hazy. But obviously, yeah, in these action movies, instead of vaguely Eastern European guys, we tend to get these odd terrorist groups like in Mission Impossible 2 uh, with Brendan Gleeson. There's also a lot of arms dealers, which is, Interesting, because they never really talk about who they're dealing arms to. Like, the actual ecosystem in which the arms dealing happens is never addressed. This is more of a Balkans, like a Balkan War movie, but I love Wag the Dog. Is that on our schedule? I can't remember. It is not. There's not really romance in it, but it's the movie about a president who has like a sex scandal like a month out from re-election, and so just distract from it. They hire a team of, like, Hollywood producers to fake a war. This sounds amazing. They, like, declare war on Albania, but, like, don't actually do anything. It's all shot on sound stages and stuff like that. They hire Willie Nelson to write patriotic songs to get everybody <laughs> excited. Oh, my God. They bring in, like, Dennis Leary is, like, the trend guy. He comes up with trends and, like, designs, like, an armband that people can wear to support the <laughs> war effort. <laughs> What's well, great? It becomes this whole thing. This movie rocks. There's a point where the opposing candidate for president goes on TV and it's like, hey, I've just talked with the Albanian government. They say there are no hostilities between our countries. And the news takes that as like, oh, the war is over. It's great. And so then they have to be like, all right, we've got some soldiers that are lost behind enemy lines. So we've got to build this big public support campaign. Like, let's get the guys who are lost. That sounds amazing. The idea that the U.S. would fight a war with Albania and it just like wouldn't end very quickly is also a weird, like, it's a weird country to choose. Yeah, I mean, it's very obviously informed by... Like, the wars in Bosnia. Yeah. Melissa, what about you? Do you have any of these post-Cold War movies that you're thinking of? I feel like Mark's Air Force One is a great choice. That's, like, the one that came to my brain. And it is Kazakhstan. You were right. But I I think that's that's a great one. That's a really great one. I still can't believe, well, that you haven't seen it. Yeah, I have not really seen most of the Harrison Ford action movies. That's one that I know. I've talked about this before. I think on the American President episode, at the National Museum of American History, there's a permanent exhibit on the presidency, and there's a video they show on the presidency on film, and Air Force One is one of those movies that 
I know from that. The get off my plane. <laughs> that was pretty a, good. It, thank you. <laughs> I was just editing the Last Crusade episode yesterday, so I have Harrison Ford's voice in my head. That was pretty but impressive. But it talked about, like, yes, the president as a romantic hero and the president as a lady and even an action hero. Get off my plane. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very impressive Harrison Ford. I've seen this video a few times. <laughs> I think the... Okay, I know we're not supposed to be talking about the American president, but I think what's interesting about that is I'm I'm rewatching, but I'm introducing Caleb to Scandal for the first time. Oh my god. Oh boy. It's great. His opinions are wonderful. I only watched one and a half seasons of that, but I was love it, I think every that's... time someone tells me anything that happened. <laughs> Early seasons or later season, you think? I watched the first season as it aired. Like, I watched the pilot the night it aired on TV. Okay. And I dropped off halfway through season two. So you Because left... I think House of Cards came back, and I was like, forget this. I think that's my trajectory, too. And then I would just occasionally, like, hear updates. It's the same thing with Glee, where you <laughs> watch season one, then you drop off halfway to season two, and all of a sudden people are like, yeah, Nene Leakes is a recurring character <laughs> who plays like a rival cheer coach. And you're just like, what is that happening? You know what? I had not yet figured, this was my freshman year of college, I hadn't figured out how to watch TV online yet, really. I left a party to see an episode of Scandal in its first season. That was the right choice. I was like <laughs> watching it over an antenna. <laughs> That's absolutely the right choice. But it made me think of like, not to spoil it for anyone who's going to be a scandalista later in life, but um, they've had time. <laughs> but there's this, there's like a moment where you know Fitz, the president, is getting divorced, dating Olivia, and I've just been trying to think about like, could we have a president that dates? I mean, I guess that's really the premise of the American president in a way. But like, and as they say in the American president, the president is uh, everyone's favorite president, Woodrow Wilson. <laughs> <laughs> but don't forget, also, didn't Grover Cleveland get married in the White House to, he like, yeah. the woman who he got set up with daughter? Something like that. It was a much younger woman. <laughs> yeah, I think it was, like, someone had set him up with this, like, older woman in her 40s, you know, old for the time, who had an <laughs> 18-year-old daughter, and Grover Cleveland married the 18-year-old. Oh, yeah, as as you would do, right? Um, Sorry, I'm... I don't want to take this into the scandal. <laughs> the scandal. I need to hear more about scandal. <laughs> I will say it is important that Woodrow Wilson dated because otherwise, who would have been running the country in 1920? <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Okay, wait. So I need to re- be reminded of what happens in scandal. There is not enough time in the world for me to describe <laughs> everything that happens in scandal. If we were going to do a scandal pod, it would have to be like our what if episode where we just set a timer and we're like, at the end of an hour, we're signing off. <laughs> exactly. Like, I would happily come back for that. It's really a joy to watch, especially through Caleb's eyes, who's never watched anything like this ever. Like, the nighttime soap kind of vibe is not his thing. But There's so great. much murder on that show. There's a lot of murder on the show. Like, I think by the end of season one or two, every main character's a murderer, indirectly or directly. But I mean, the president's a murderer directly. So, you know, it is what it is. Feels like it shouldn't be necessary. He's got people to do that for him. You know, sometimes you got to get your hands dirty, Will. <laughs> there are just so many people with guns. Who work for the president. Well, he's, well, okay, then I, I I will take us off this tangent, but he smothers a Supreme Court justice with a pillow. <laughs> what? <laughs> yes. Well, as Ned Stark says, the Lord that passes sentence should wield the sword. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yes, he smothers Verna with a pillow while she's in the hospital dying from cancer. I vaguely remember this. Maybe I saw that episode. Pretty good. <laughs> was it like a, I don't remember this. Is that like a mercy thing? Like, no. It's she a, was already dying. It's oh, a, is well, it his, they had terms. They had just end? elected Scott Brown and they needed to get a new justice before the balance <laughs> of the Senate changed. <laughs> So the Supreme Court justice, before she was a justice, helped them steal the presidential election by rigging votes in Ohio. And she wanted to write a book and tell it all before she died. And he was like, no. <laughs> so, you know, there you go. I forgot it was a stolen election show. <laughs> it's, a, it's an everything show, really. Anything you need, it's there. Well, speaking of something that provides everything I need. <laughs> perfect segue i think we should talk about mission impossible (laughs) i agree with you all right welcome to we love the love a hollywood romance podcast i'm mark and i'm gay and i'm will and i'm a ginger this is an investigative podcast dedicated to examining the very least important question facing the world does hollywood romance actually make any sense and why are movies not horny anymore an actual spinoff idea that i think we should get into but this is like the least horny brian de palma movie I know, and yet, it, it's so much hornier than anything we get today. I think we will have to talk about its horniness, at least in the context of the Mission Impossible movies. Also, are these people dateable or likable? And it doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation or whatever it is we get here. John Boyd says <laughs> yeah. some pretty weird things. Uh, we will dig in and see what's there. And this week, we are rejoined by our great friend Melissa, to talk about Brian De Palma's 1996 blockbuster, Mission, colon, Impossible. Hello, hello. I'm never going to be able to send an episode to my parents. I realize that every single time. I'm what have we show. done? <laughs> every time. Is, are your parents going to be spoiled on Scandal? Is that the issue? <laughs> yes, that's it. That It's not talking about the horniness of it. It's that they're still in season four of Scandal. That's the real problem. I mean, there's going to be a lot of talk about horniness on this episode. Yeah, I'll have to, I'll just have we to We don't back. have much romance <laughs> to get into. I mean, forget, like, Blowout. This is much less horny than, like, Carrie. <laughs> I know, but, Will, one, we don't have anything else to talk about, because there's no romance. There's the love between John Voight and Emmanuel Bayard. What, like, what are we talking about here? It's a beautiful marriage. And also, it's like, can you imagine a Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning being this horny? I mean, not in the same way. Right. I think... Sort of the interesting thing about the movie for me this time watching it through, because this was only my second time seeing the original. I've seen three through six several times, uh, but I've seen two once, and this was my second time seeing one, is that at the beginning of the movie, Ethan Hunt is like a cool guy. Like, he's cracking jokes about the coffee. He's like making fun of John Voight, like ragging on his boss. When he's told he's going to be in the, like, cool, attention-grabbing playboy role at the party, he's like, of course I would be. Like, I'm going to have a blast. He's, like, cool 90s Tom Cruise at the beginning of the movie. Mm -hmm. And then his entire team gets murdered. (laughs) And he's framed for it. And it, like, puts him into shock. And then the rest of the series is about him getting to a point where he can, like, rebuild a crew of people that he takes with him. Starting with Luther, and then you get Benji, and the rest of them. And... There are, like, gestures towards romance every once in a while. There's the Michelle Monaghan thing in Mission Impossible 3, which is weird as much as I love her. But then, like, I love the Ethan Hunt, Ilsa Faust thing, but it's not horny in the same way. This movie, we are introduced to his boss's wife 
And she's like, they've knocked her out with some sort of medicine to make her seem dead. And then Ethan Hunt is injecting her with the antidote and like patting her face, like come back to life. And I was like, oh, his girlfriend. Nope. Boss's wife. So there was an earlier cut of the movie where instead of like leading off with a big, not like the first opening sequence that you're talking about, but after that leading off with like an explanation of like, here's a mission and here's what we're all going to do. There was like love triangle business with John Voight, Tom Cruise and Emmanuel Bayard. And apparently it was George Lucas who watched that cut and was like, this is a Mission Impossible movie. Why are you talking about romance and not a mission? Thank you, George Lucas. Do you think this movie, is John Voight supposed to be kind of hot in this? I ask myself that every time I've seen this. Like, in what world would Tom Cruise and him be, like, vying for the same woman? I don't know that he's supposed to be hot. I mean, the context that adult audiences would bring in in 1996 is that John Voight is playing the character who was the lead of the TV show. Right. That's good context. You're right. Which, by, like, is impossible to imagine happening today. Like, if you said there was this popular TV show, we're making a movie. By the way, the hero of the TV show uh, is going to be the villain, <laughs> and we're going to get rid of him, and someone else will be the cool guy. People would riot. It's so much cooler this way, though. Yeah, and to be fair, like, the diehard Mission Impossible fans were mad at the time, but the internet was small, and there weren't that many of them. <laughs> so you couldn't have a Last Jedi-style campaign. But, like, they actually invited Peter Graves who played Jim Phelps on TV to come back and he was going to do it until he found out he was the villain. I don't even think I realized that he was the lead on the TV show until this moment, which makes it even cooler. And also even more like end of history, America ennui. Right. The old heroes literally are like fully aimless. Don't know how to handle the world now that there's no cold war. So where where are you guys on Mission Impossible? I think we're all big fans of the franchise generally, but like, Mark, Melissa, do you want to talk about where you come into this movie or the series more broadly? I mean, I obviously love all things Mission Impossible all the time, but it's weird. I had rewatched this for the first time a couple of months ago and kind of, I guess like maybe post Rogue Nation Fallout, like kind of was like, oh, I don't remember this one being that great. But now, like, seeing it again, I'm like, no, this is actually, like, really subversive and interesting in a way that I, I don't know, probably was lost on me, like, the very first time that I saw it. So, like, I rank this one highly in the series, for sure. I was thinking about that today, too. I was like, it, it really only suffers in comparison to Rogue Nation and Fallout. And, it, right. like, if those movies didn't exist, you would be, like, unequivocally great movie. A hundred percent. But this is up there. And I think, in a way, watching it again makes me appreciate those two even more. It was funny reading about the production of it because those are the first two of the Christopher McQuarrie movies, who's also directing Dead Reckoning and Dead Reckoning Part 2. But Deader Reckoning. Right. <laughs> McQuarrie, like, famously starts his process with location scouts. They, like, find interesting places and then say, okay, how can we build stunts around these locations? And then how can we build a plot around those stunts? And that's been enormously successful. You know, there's the climax of Fallout on those cliffs. There's the big motorcycle jump that we're going to get in Dead Reckoning. It was funny reading about the production of this one because this movie, despite being such a smaller scale, which is funny because that's not how people thought of it in 1996, was kind of put together in the same way where Brian De Palma and Tom Cruise 
came up with these ideas for stunts and figured out the stunts and then they had all this stuff tied up. They actually just start shooting before they had a finished script where like David Cap and Robert Town were trying to figure out, okay, how do we put a story around these stunt sequences? Like the train and the lab acrobatics. I didn't know that. And it's interesting because I think of this movie as like much more intimate and grounded. And so I'm surprised that it started with the stunts and then the story and not the reverse. Well, this was like seen as a big dumb action movie. This was part of, like, Hollywood has no ideas. (laughs) And you watch it today, and you're like, this is, like, an interesting cultural commentary. (laughs) There's cool stunts. As you said, it's fairly intimate. It's all really about character relationships. Right. And it's, like, yeah, it's it's shocking, like, trying to look back on it and contextualizing it from the time it was made. Because that, none of, like, all of that surprises me. So they started with, like... The train. I mean, I guess it kind of makes sense why the third act feels so different to me, I think, than the first two. Like, the the, the end of the movie feels like an action movie. Whereas, yes, in a way that the rest doesn't. Yeah, 100%. Which I know some of the TV show people, like Martin Landau, who was on the TV show for three seasons, criticized the movie because he was like, it's an action movie. And the whole point of Mission Impossible was that, like, you go in, you get out, nobody knows you were there. Nobody, like, blows up uh, helicopters and blow up in the channel? I think uh, that show was on CBS in the 1960s, <laughs> and they did not blow up helicopters in the channel. Not least because the channel did not exist. <laughs> I mean, that's part of the thing in this movie. In terms of, like, finding cool locations, the channel was fairly new at this point. That's pretty incredible. I'm, like, really having to look on this with, like, a whole new eye. Because the history of this is, like, completely lost on me when I was watching it. I'm, I, like, can't watch it without thinking about the Cold War stuff. <laughs> And, you know, we were sort of talking about this earlier. I think it's interesting that the Mission Impossible movies kind of dodge the icky war on terror stuff by just going into first, like, kind of odd terrorists like Brendan Gleeson in two and Philip Seymour Hoffman in three. And then after that, we just get, like, the syndicate stuff. I don't remember who the villains are of Ghost Protocol, but... I don't really either. Yeah, it's like the... Yeah, they do really skirt the issue by making the the quote-unquote villains, like, completely unknown. Want to shout out real quick, before we get too deep into the movie, that two women acting in this film were later made dame commanders of the Order of the British Empire by Queen Elizabeth. And I can only assume that we have Dame Kristen Scott Thomas and Dame Vanessa Redgrave because of this film. Oh, definitely. Vanessa Redgrave in this movie is great. She's in, like, three scenes. Her job is just to be, like, this, like, beautiful older woman who you believe could also murder you. And she does it fantastically. She's the arms dealer. Amazing. Like, the 90s loved their arms dealers. Who's the arms dealer? It's Vanessa Redgrave. And her name is Max. Very powerful. You know, Melissa, we never actually really got into. So, like, did you see this movie growing up? Like, where... When did you come to Mission Impossible? I think I saw this when I was in high school, like early high school, maybe, because I remember the Emilio Estevez elevator scene, like really messing me up. And like, I I remember like pausing it, trying to like, I don't know, gruesomely understand like he was stabbed by these things. And it made me a little wary of elevators. Not that I was ever on that side of it, but I just was like very 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 scarred by that scene so i think i came to these in 
in like high school ish yeah what about you guys i think i first watched this in middle school because there's really not that much in it that like i feel like the elevator scene is the only thing i would describe as gruesome yeah where like a eighth grader would you wouldn't want to show an eighth grader but even that and it is mostly suggested yeah they cut away before the gore but it is a like horrifying suggestion so my parents at least my mom i remember loves mission impossible like the first one so she was really excited to show me as a kid and i really liked it but also in the way that an eighth grader would where i wasn't exactly understanding the context of the end of the cold war and the interesting (laughs) things that it actually has to say outside of the cool stunts but i don't think you need to you don't need to i mean the scene where he is, like, floating above the floor and they're monitoring the temperature in the controlled CIA room and all that is genuinely cool. It's thrilling. Watching the, like, sweat hit his eyeglasses instead of the ground. It honestly almost goes a little too well. Like, something goes wrong, but they all just get away fine. I don't care. It's cool. <laughs> it doesn't matter. I think this movie has, like, some of... This is, like, probably one of the most iconic movies ever, right? Like, I feel like even if you've never seen this movie, I mean, outside of, like, knowing the music and all of that stuff, but you know the him hovering above the floor, I think the helicopter in the channel, like, there's some really iconic pieces in this. Especially that CIA heist. The visuals of that were so omnipresent when we were growing up. That, like, I didn't see this movie until 2020. And when I got to that, I was like, yep, here's a whole thing that I've seen before, and it still plays great. Because I did not grow up on the Mission Impossible movies. I got into it in 2018 because I was just seeing the Fallout trailer constantly. (laughs) And thank goodness, instead of getting sick of it the way that I do for something like Ruby Gilman, Teenage Kraken, I instead was like, this trailer looks amazing. And so I went in and I saw Fallout, having seen no other Mission Impossible movie, decided it rocked and started just like picking up the others and watching them. And one and two were the last ones that I saw. Uh, When I moved into my first solo apartment during COVID, I had the 4Ks mailed there so that the first mail that I got there would be Mission Impossible movies. (laughs) Mark is rolling his eyes at me. You loser. But yeah, they rock. I I love watching these movies. They're fantastic. I watched Ghost Protocol the day of my wedding. <laughs> That's perfect. The day I got married, I watched Jerry Maguire over breakfast, Ghost Protocol over lunch, and then I got married. You had a banner day. <laughs> it was a great day. <laughs> Me and Tom Cruise. And <laughs> Yeah, and my wife. Melissa, I do have to ask, have you seen the trailers for Ruby Gilman, Teenage Kraken? I was actually going to ask, <laughs> what is that? Because I have not seen, but I, but I've been to the movies like a, I would say a lot lately, and I haven't, I haven't seen that. Will and I have texted extensively about these. I got them watching Peacock, like during the commercials on Peacock, a lot. I've been seeing it because I see movies for children, like The Little Mermaid and the <laughs> Super Mario Brothers. But I saw Super Mario Brothers, and I didn't. I don't think I saw it there. What's the TLDR on? Consider yourself. So blessed. (laughs) Ruby Gilman Teenage Kraken is this spring, I guess summer, it's coming out at the end of June, uh, DreamWorks animation feature. And 
after a really promising 2022 for DreamWorks, where first the bad guys and then Puss in Boots were like pretty solid as movies and exciting steps forward in terms of animation style. Ruby Gilman not only looks dumb, uh, it's basically like knockoff actioneer Luca. It's about like a Kraken who wants to live among people, but the people are afraid of Krakens. It doesn't even look like pre-Bad Guys DreamWorks. It looks like Illumination Rejects. <laughs> like it's all just rounded blobs. Well, are you guys gonna... Are you guys gonna it offends see it, me as a boring looking movie and also because it feels like a huge step backward for DreamWorks who, as much as they frustrate me, I am rooting for to be better. <laughs> I refuse to give this movie any money. <laughs> if it shows up on Peacock, I will consider doing an episode. But the trailer, Melissa, is two straight minutes of exposition. <laughs> it is. It's crazy. What? It is two straight minutes of voiceover exposition laying out the world, the rules, and the plot. Because it's all so complicated and made up and not based in any sort of, like, existent myth or storytelling. The trailer's mostly narrated by Jane Fonda, who plays Ruby Gilman's cracking grandma, who teaches her that Krakens, in addition to being able to change size, can also shoot lasers. And their I'm... mission is to save the world from evil mermaids. Yeah, so there's a TV spot for it that starts off looking like it's a TV spot for the Little Mermaid, and then it's like, mermaids suck, let's go Krakens! <laughs> Okay, I'm definitely going to watch this trailer after, because what in the world? Okay. It's like, yes, you need to see it, but also part of me is like, save yourself the <laughs> horror, but I think it's worth the two minutes. I just yeah. cannot imagine it eating up much of the share of Spider-Verse or even Elemental, which is holding pretty well. And it's out at the end of, yeah, at the end of this month. Okay. As we record, it comes out on Friday. Well, I definitely won't be watching the movie, but I will at least watch the trailer. It almost made me stop watching Peacock because it came up so often in the commercials. And it is the only place to stream Real Housewives. Thank God it's coming out and I will be spared. It's, it's always a shame when you're cheering for a movie to get released so you never have to see the trailer again. Sometimes it even happens with movies I want to see. Like The Lost King, perfectly lovely movie, but I was so sick of that trailer by the time it came out. Okay, but... So I, you guys have seen the Dead Reckoning trailer. Is it oh, yes. weird? Is it weird to you? I saw the you? full like fifteen minute featurette before my Way of Water IMAX screening, and it was fantastic. Okay, but my thing about the trailer is like I feel like what I I also watched the Fallout trailer like a million times before I finally saw it in theaters, and I feel like the Imagine Dragons song was such a like critical part of the Fallout trailer. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the thing, you're not wrong. I'm right, I'm not wrong, like, I'm not wrong, but the Dead Reckoning one to me, like, in comparison, I'm like, where's my Imagine Dragon song? Or any song, really. So what works for me about the Dead Reckoning trailer is, one, the motorcycle jump. <laughs> yes. And also having the context of watching the whole featurette about making the motorcycle stunt of, like, Tom Cruise being like, let's do it again, I think I can wait longer before I jump off the motorcycle. And, like, seeing Chris McCory down at the monitor being like, maybe this is the day I watch Tom Cruise die. <laughs> but the other stuff that works for me is different environments. Like, the fact that it starts off with the desert stuff, that's not somewhere we've really been in a Mission Impossible movie. I'm excited about seeing him riding a horse. I love seeing all my best friends together again on a boat. <laughs> and also, I love seeing Henry Zerny in there. I know! Kittredge is back! I'm so excited about that. I love him. I think what we need... In a Mission Impossible movie, though, 
is a take a page from the Fast and Furious franchise book and have a hangout session scene. <laughs> they don't have a lot of scenes where they're sitting in someone's yard at a barbecue. Talking Rita about Miranda family. shows up as a grandmother, <laughs> unexplained. No, they do them at the end of the movies sometimes. Like at the end of Ghost Protocol, when they're all at the bar in San Francisco, and they like see Michelle Monaghan across the bay, and they're like, ah, she's still alive, we're good. <laughs> so Mark needs a really great family cookout. I need an Imagine Dragon song in the trailer. Will, what is your wish for Dead Reckoning? I mean, you know, I think it's been exciting as Macquarie brings back more and more people. The fact that Michelle Monaghan was in Rogue Nation. The fact that Henry Zerny is in Dead Reckoning. I want Paula Patton back. Wow. Okay. She's so cool in Ghost Protocol. And her character's still alive. So let's do it. Oh, I also, frankly, I want Agent Brand back. I like Jeremy Renner in these movies a lot. (laughs) And I know he's busy renovating, but I think he could make some time. We wish him the best so that he can return to these films. But also, Melissa, have you listened to the Renner Files podcast? I absolutely have not. (laughs) Oh, it's the podcast about the Jeremy Renner app? You know about the Jeremy Renner app. It's a deep dive. It's like eight episodes. He started a social media platform that was just about Jeremy Renner. Yes, I did know this. I think my only real like weird Jeremy Renner info is his singing career. Mm -hmm. But I I know. Oh, they cover that too. Okay, that I want to hear more about, but like the renovations, the Renner Files, the app, lost on me. So the Renner Files is the podcast that covers mostly the app, but also the other weird Renner ephemera. <laughs> this is pre-renovations, so that's not on there. Have you guys watched Renovations? No, of course not. <laughs> I mean, you know, might check it out just perusing Disney Plus one night. <laughs> I would watch almost anything else on Disney Plus before I watch okay. Renovations. And I would certainly... Like, I'm never on Disney Plus being like, what should I watch? I open Disney Plus and I say, is there anything better than The Simpsons right now? <laughs> okay, would you guys rather watch Renovations or that Kraken movie? I would rather watch Ruby Gilman. It's gotta be shorter. If it was the equivalent amount of time. Yes, equivalent amount of time. What do you choose? I would rather watch Renovations. No, I would still watch Ruby Gilman. <laughs> is he... Okay. <laughs> is he out of the hospital? I think uh... he's. I think he's out of the hospital. I think so. I'm pretty sure he is. Okay. Despite all of the laughter here, like you said, Mark, we, we wish him the best. <laughs> I just Googled Jeremy Renner, and the first hit was Snopes. Jeremy Renner is not dead. Oh, yeah, because he was trending on Twitter. Someone had hashtag rip Jeremy Renner Yikes. trending. But he's fine. Okay. Or, wow. You know, he's okay, I guess. It just took a turn. <laughs> <laughs> but also, I really think more celebrities should release social media apps. Because at least it didn't allow for massive, like, misinformation spreading. Right, it was just a place where people put, like, fan art. Of Jeremy Renner? Uh, I think uh, some of Jeremy Renner, I think just in general, people were, like, posting their artwork. And he also would just, like, send tweets, but exclusively about him. Wow. What a guy. So Mission Impossible. (laughs) (laughs) It's very much Tom Cruise's franchise, despite the fact that in Ghost Protocol in the wake of Tom Cruise's mid-2000s scandals, part of the original plan was to have that be a handoff movie where it would be Ethan Hunt's last one and then Brand would be the new lead of the series. That obviously didn't happen, especially after Chris McQuarrie came on board to rework the screenplay and was like, this franchise is the Tom Cruise franchise. You cannot get rid of him. I also just don't know if Jeremy Renner would have been my choice. I don't think I'm like a huge fan of his generally but i i just don't know if he's the the guy here 
it makes sense for 2011. It was that moment right after the Hurt Locker and the town where he was in like everything because he was going to be the new Mission Impossible lead. He was going to be the new Born lead. He was going to be in the Marvel movies. And of course, he was going to be Hansel of Hansel and Gretel Witch Hunters. Oh, yeah. The most important of everything you just listed. Yeah. I just don't see it for him. I didn't then and I don't. I, I don't know. He's just not the he's not that guy in my head. But I really did love the town. I think of those, like, franchises that he gets after the town, his Mission Impossible performance is the best, but he's like a desk guy. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But for Cruise, this franchise is really important because it's Mission Impossible 1996 is the first movie that he produces. Like, by the late 80s, he is this huge star. The three of us talked about Top Gun as this big level-up moment for him. And by the end of the 80s, he's in this kind of interesting period as a star where he's just going through and kind of working with all of the canonical directors where he does born on the 4th of July with Oliver Stone. He works with Ron Howard, Rob Reiner, Sidney Pollack, Stanley Kubrick, PTA, John Woo, of course on Mission Impossible 2, Cameron Crowe, Steven Spielberg, Michael Mann. And so he is kind of like, I'm the biggest star. And instead of like doing franchise stuff, he was like trying to work with all these big directors. And then when he starts his production company with Paulo Wagner, they're looking for their first project. Paramount had been trying to adapt this for a while. And Cruz was like, okay, let's do that. And this is going to be part of the work with all these big director projects. So originally Sidney Pollack signed on, but he left pretty quickly and was replaced with Brian De Palma. And I love the Macquarie movies. I think Rogue Nation and Fallout are the best of the franchise. But it is kind of cool that the first four movies are all like a different director comes on board and puts their spin on a Mission Impossible movie. Like, this is unequivocally a Brian De Palma movie. Two is unequivocally a John Woo movie. Like, four very much feels like Brad Bird. Yeah, I agree. It's kind of like, I think it's fun when you, when things like this happen. Like, I think that was what was so interesting, at least, about the first Black Panther Mm. and when Taika Waititi took over Thor. is like, you kind of get to see really popular directors who have a style, like, you know, give their take on like a franchise that already has its own history. Obviously not necessarily the case with this one, although I guess you have the history of the television show, but like for John Woo and the directors after. Counterpoint to this. I like it for the Mission Impossible series, but I'm tired of now directors make small movies that are good and then direct a franchise movie. Okay, that's bad, but like in these cases, like the Mission Impossible movies, with the exception of J.J. Abrams, that's not what was going on. These were big directors coming in and saying, I'm going to bring my stuff to this. Like, what you're describing is almost the flip of it, where, like, they're taking people who are, like, pretty inexperienced and can be shepherded through a VFX-heavy process. Like, I was thinking about that watching this movie today, where there's so much style to De Palma's directing and, like, the camera movements and stuff like that that you just never see in a blockbuster these days because they want fairly conservative framing so that Mm -hmm. they can do all their visual effects stuff in the background. Like the way De Palma shoots this movie would make it much harder to do, say, fully digital environments. You know, fair. And also, this like, this movie really didn't good. cost that much money. It cost, like, 60, 70 million dollars. Like, that's like, today this is, like, a mid-budget action movie. Or, like, an episode of the Lord of the Rings TV show. Like, right. not bad. <laughs> yeah. I was so pleasantly surprised at the runtime of this movie. Yes. It blows by. <laughs> You know, the knock on this movie when it came out was that it was incredibly confusing. <laughs> and it's funny, I kind of felt that the first time I watched it, but watching it today, where I know where it's going with all the, like, John Voight stuff, I was just kind of like, look, the thing's pretty simple, it moves pretty quickly, I had a great time. It's not 
ex- like the most simple. No, there's a lot of bad guys in this movie. Like way more than good guys, honestly. Yeah, but like you don't have to keep track of that many of them. Yeah. Also, Vanessa Redgrave is just so easy to keep track of. Yeah. <laughs> just delightful. Because my biggest critique is I wanted more of Max on screen. I think it's the right amount. I think she gets to remain ethereal and aloof and <laughs> probably a murderer. Yeah. It's just so captivating that you want more, but I think it's the right choice to not give us more, to leave us wanting more. Let's bring her back in Dead Reckoning too. Well, you know I was looking at the Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning 1 cast list, and you know who Vanessa Kirby is playing. I know, yeah, the Vanessa Kirby character is her character's daughter. What? Right. Yeah. This this tracks, like, in the world of Mission Impossible. And I actually did think about Vanessa Kirby a lot while watching this, so I don't hate it. But yeah. I can't wait to see how they explain anything. Like, where has Kittredge been? This is my question every time I see the Dead Reckoning trailer. What is I guess just doing? with the IMF, right? Yeah, there's got to be more than this one team. But he's not. But he was the IMF director in this one. Was he the director? Yeah. And I then, thought... presumably, like, I mean, you know, he isn't in the other movies. So what no, is he No, we get hungry for a while. Maybe he got retired. Or maybe he joined the syndicate. <gasps> <gasps> what if he's in the syndicate? That would be awesome. Can't wait! I cannot wait. This movie is coming out two days after this episode comes out, and I'm thrilled because <laughs> they're releasing it on a Wednesday. Hear me out. If they're casting only Vanessa's in the Max line, what if we get introduced to cousin Vanessa Anna Hudgens playing <laughs> <laughs> anyone? I was, well, no, she should come in as one of the Princess Switch characters. Every yes. single is, time, isn't the third I one a criminal? Show. Princess of Belgravia. <laughs> Every time I'm on this show, <laughs> <laughs> Vanessa Ann Hudgens comes up. We're talking about Tom Cruise. Not every time, but it has happened more than once. But it's definitely Vanessa Hudgens every time. That movie has poisoned my brain. <laughs> <laughs> we gotta do another Lifetime movie, though. Yeah, oh, yeah I'm, in. I'm in for that, for sure. All right, so just moving along through Mission Impossible. The original movie also opened on a Wednesday. It opened to the Wednesday before Memorial Day, 1996. It was the first movie to open on more than 3,000 screens, and it broke the record for a Wednesday opener. It also broke the record for the biggest opening weekend in the month of May, which was then broken again the next year by The Lost World. And it ultimately became the third highest grossing film of 1996, making $180 million in North America and another $276 million overseas. And I'm curious, do you all want to try and get the rest of the top of the box office in 1996? It is a good list. Can we have a hint? Yeah. So Mission Impossible comes in three. One and two are also big special effects blockbusters of that summer. Ooh, okay. Titanic was 97, Correct. Yes. And that's also a winter movie. So pre-Titanic. I'm just trying to, I'm putting, I'm I'm putting myself in the, the mode, the Mm -hmm. year. Vicky, give us like one more hint that doesn't like tell us, but gets us closer. (laughs) Independence Day? Independence Day's number one. Nice, Mark. (laughs) I'm pretty impressed with myself. I'm impressed with you, too. That was great. Number two is a disaster movie that opened, like, two weeks before Mission Impossible. It had actually set the May record for an opening weekend, and then Mission Impossible broke it two weeks later. Twister? 
It is Twister. Yes. <laughs> oh my god. Yes. Wow. Wow. Go so us. three is Mission Impossible. Number four is an action movie. It is set in a prison or around a prison. Iconic '90s action movie. Con Air. Not Con Air, but you're thinking about the right stars. It's a Nick Cage movie. It's not Face Off, is it? It's not Face Off. That, I think, is 97. Also a prison movie. Uh, Melissa, this is from the director of the great film Ambulance. Oh, wait. Michael Bay, Nick Cage in prison? What is this? It's The Rock. Oh, wow. Okay, I haven't seen The Rock. I just wanted to throw in the ambulance thing, because I think I, we, I our opinions that. differ on that movie. <laughs> Wildly. <laughs> that movie rocks. That movie sucks so bad. <laughs> Number five is an animated movie from uh, Walt Disney Studios. 96 Disney film. Hercules? Hercules is the next year. Hercules is 97. Pocahontas? That's 95. Oh my gosh, 95. so close. I bookended it. Um... Problem is, I wasn't watching these movies like as they came out because I was two, so I don't have the timeline. Give us one Aladdin more was hint. nine. Is it Aladdin? Aladdin's ninety-two. Oh, Aladdin's pre Lion King. That's right. Yeah. Um, this is the the Disney animated feature that includes the talents of Jason Alexander. Oh man, I'm just gonna like start listing them. Jungle Book? Okay, that's 1967. Okay, we're jumping a little far back there, <laughs> no, Melissa. No, like, is that movie really that old? Yes. <laughs> yes. Wow. Walt Disney worked on that movie. <laughs> Can we cut this? <laughs> no. <laughs> also in this movie, Disclosure star Demi Moore. Oh, 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 Hunchback. Yes, The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Oh. The creepiest one. Number six is a live-action remake of an animated film. Okay, Disney. Correct. <laughs> Pop off. Uh, it is a Disney feature. But this one's good. I grew up on this one. <laughs> I think those two statements don't cancel each other out. I know. I was, was going to say that, but I was like, that's mean. <laughs> no, that's a good thought. I'm pretty sure it is also good. Hmm. One more hint. Disney has gone on to make another live-action movie pulling from this animated movie. Damn, they're really just... <laughs> like, there's this one in 1996, and there's another one in 2021 that's not telling the same story exactly, but is about, like, the same characters. Oh, I know. Oh, what is it? God, which one is it? Hmm. I have, like, seen, like, none of the live-action new Disney stuff, so... That's okay. They're pretty much all bad. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if there's been a good one yet. But this one has a great core villain performance. By an acting legend who is maybe most famous for not winning Oscars. Oh, um, is it? It's Cruella. Uh, Cruella was twenty twenty one. So is it one hundred one Dalmatians with Glenn Close as Cruella Deville? It is Damn. one of the most iconic performances. <laughs> yeah, it's a great performance. That that hint was rough. <laughs> <laughs> I am very curious now if that movie is good. Yeah, I feel, we might have to find out. I think it was good. I think you're good on this one. I think it was good. Number seven is a movie called Ransom that I've never heard of. It's a Ron Howard movie starring Mel Gibson as a, a billionaire whose kid is kidnapped. Uh, number eight is The Nutty Professor. Nice. Number nine, Jerry Maguire. And number ten, Space Jam. Wow, what a great year. 
Yeah, it's like a, a pretty strong top 10. It's a solid list. Okay, from that 10, what is your favorite movie? Jerry Maguire, no question. Yeah. What about you? I think it's Jerry Maguire for me too, but I feel like I have the most memories of Twister. Like, another movie I think I probably shouldn't, I saw like maybe too early and I always thought like a tornado was gonna kill me. <laughs> like every five Oh, minutes. absolutely. I didn't even see it. <laughs> I mean, it didn't help that we had tornado sirens frequently. Right. So it's like, that's, I think it's not, it's like stuck in my brain, but I have more love for Jerry Maguire, but I really like Bill Paxton. Maybe that started it. So I don't know. Conflicted about Twister. I have only seen Twister on TV, like with commercials and stuff. So I feel like I need to sit down and give it a proper watch sometime. What about you, Mark? What's your favorite? I think Jerry Maguire. I haven't seen Twister yet. I know about it. I uh, was very afraid of tornadoes, and I think part of that is what kept me away from it. But we did a lot of tornado drills, and I also did have to go into the basement a few times growing up. Yikes. But nothing ever came of it. I do wonder what I'd do now that I don't have textbooks with me at all times. (laughs) How do I cover the back of my neck in case of a tornado? I think there are books in your house. (laughs) Yes, but nothing quite as powerful as a 7th grade chemistry textbook. Well, is there anything else we need to talk about before we can get into the romance of Mission Impossible? I'm thinking, I'm looking at my notes. You just have Emilio Estevez's earring. That I know. That hasn't come up yet. <laughs> I was going to say that, that, I don't know, that felt like it needed to be spoken of. I mean, that to me is part of the cleverness of the movie, that they have this whole team at the beginning, including these young stars like Emilio Estevez and Kristen Scott Thomas. And then the movie's like, nope, they're all dead. The movie's just (laughs) Tom Cruise alone. Like, they're all the kind of actors that you think, okay, they're going to be around for the whole movie. Right, they'll hang in there. Not at all. Emilio Estevez and his earring, gone. The one that really surprised me, honestly, was Kristen Scott Thomas because she seemed like a good backup flirt. Yeah, and like coming off four weddings and a funeral. The English patient, she was probably not, the English patient wasn't out by the time this was being made, I'm sure. I think that's 95. Yeah. Oh, no, that's 96. That's the same year as this. So I feel like we hit, I mean, I have Tom Cruise's great in prosthetics, but really I think I was just thinking of the Tropic Thunder, like, later scenes, and that he really just can work it in some prosthetics. I mean, this is the one where every time you see a mask, it is a person in a rubber mask. (laughs) We're like, now a lot of times it's like digital effects and stuff like that, but in this one, it's rubber masks the whole way through. I love it. Authentic. And you've also got Tom Cruise as that Virginia senator. <laughs> that is amazing. That It's so good. <laughs> it's so, so good and so stupid. I love it. My favorite part is the, like, Tom Cruise as the Virginia senator on the TV yes. show. <laughs> on, like, the McLaughlin the group. Real one. Like, they've got John McLaughlin there being like, so why do you think the impossible mission force is a bad idea? He's like, well, I think that uh, these government people should be listening to what we say. The IMF is a bad thing. Obviously, yeah. <laughs> I do think it's funny. In this movie, you see the IMF logo in the background of a couple of shots. I don't think they ever say IMF. They certainly do not say Impossible Mission Force. <laughs> yeah, the IMF is definitely objectively bad. That's what's funny in Fallout, where like Angela Bassett's whole plotline in Fallout is like, this is crazy. You have to come work for the CIA. It's so Ill- like illegal under international law. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's why the thing is, anytime if a person looks at you, you will be disavowed. 
they also like lose their information and like lots of information a lot so like they're not really great at this the whole like losing all the agents and their ids isn't that also what happens in rogue nation yes (laughs) and also several other spy stories it's one of the easiest MacGuffins out there Including the film Spy. (laughs) But, like, it was also funny to learn in reading about the TV show that, like, the TV show included the warning about, like, you know, if, you know, you're caught, you'll be disavowed or something. Like, apparently in the TV show, none of them ever get disavowed. (laughs) And it happens in every movie. Things got strict. It's happened to Ethan so many times. To the point that in Fallout, again, it's acknowledged where Henry Cavill is like, yeah, of course Tom Cruise would turn on the government. He's disavowed every other week. (laughs) And that's not even getting into what happens when the president invokes Ghost Protocol. These movies are absurd. They're so good. I love them. I think we hit all of my main points. Except for Ethan has been doing stupid shit since day one. Which is, like, the best- Well, they arrested his mom. They did arrest his mom, but, like, the scene on the train is, like, maximum- It's, like, Ethan at his best slash worst. I love it. But he's definitely- It's good to know he's been dumb forever. I love that. All right. Well, I think we should we should dig into the romance, which I assume will be about John Voight and his wife, Emmanuel Bayard, who engage in an evil conspiracy to enrich themselves by having a bunch of agents be killed. It is absolutely not about that. <laughs> All right. In my memory, she and Tom Cruise had sex in this movie, and I just kept waiting for it to happen. And it never does. Maybe, you know, before the movie. It was probably just me, like, sitting on my couch in 2020 being like, She's pretty hot. (laughs) (laughs) No, the true romance of this movie is the true romance of all of the Mission Impossible movies, which is Ethan and Luther. The only characters who are in every movie. Right. I really thought about, I was like, should I do Jim and his wife? But no, I wanted to do Ethan and Luther. So that's what I did. All right. (laughs) Okay. So my first point is Ethan is just wasting his time pining for his boss's wife and basically every other woman and living person in his vicinity. Well, he's got to keep changing his target because they keep dropping dead. (laughs) Maybe that's telling him something. Yes, that's why he has to divorce (laughs) Michelle Monaghan later on. He realizes every woman I fall in love with dies. (laughs) But yeah, I thought, we kind of talked about this a little bit already, but that we're really meeting Tom Cruise slash Ethan at like his most cad-like his most charming which is certainly not you know how he evolves over the course of the series but we're meeting him at a place where he's very fun very loose having a good time there are a lot of tom cruise movies that start this way like a few good men kind of starts with the same kind of tom cruise top gun kind of starts with the same sort of tom cruise it's just kind of funny that in this series they broke him so early and he has been broken for so long now like we never see him regain his sense of being fun, cracking jokes left and right, Ethan Hunt. I mean, it takes until, like, the end of Ghost Protocol before he's willing to, like, build relationships with a team again. Other than his one true love, Luther. Right. <laughs> Luther, he, he can always get a beer with at the end of a movie. Exactly. Um, but no, I think you're right, Mark. It's like, we've known broken Ethan longer than we knew, like, normal, fun Ethan. By, like... Tens of hours. Right. <laughs> so that, yeah, that's where I wanted to start. Is like, that's where we meet him. He's a very different person than how we see him across, like, the rest of the series. And it's like, it takes a lot to, like, flirt so openly with your boss's wife. Like, that's a lot. 
Well, John Voight should have taken her to the Drake Hotel with him instead of oh. leaving her with Ethan Hunt. <laughs> so that was my point one. All right. And then second point is his whole team dies. So he's on his own. And like, you know, the real journey has begun. Like the real mission has started and he's going to need some help. So he's Ethan on the hunt. That should be the name of the musical when it gets to the question. <laughs> Ethan on the hunt, the musical? <laughs> yes. Just because we've been talking about Jeremy Renner and you brought this up. You know they're making the Captain America musical from the Hawkeye show? Why? <laughs> like they're doing it as like a 30 minute thing at Disneyland. Like a wow. theme park musical. Mark, you probably don't know this. In the Hawkeye TV show, there is a Captain America musical. It's like clearly supposed to be like, in this universe, Hamilton is about Captain America. And they're doing it as a Disneyland show. Dumb. (laughs) I don't disagree with you. But it is like very specifically Hamilton, but about Captain America. I can't believe that. That makes me both sad and intrigued. (laughs) Right. I'm like morbidly curious. Right. But yeah, so that was my second one. He's looking for his match and he's kind of... He's got to go to the disavowed list where, you know, he first stumbles upon Luther and Krieger, who sucks. What are we downloading? Information. What kind? Profitable. Payment on delivery? Mm. I don't know. I just don't know. This doesn't sound like the Luther stickle I heard of. What did they used to call you, the Net Ranger? Phineas Freak, the only man alive who actually hacked NATO Ghost Cop. There was never any physical evidence that I had anything to do with that. With that, that exceptional piece of work. Okay, do we see Krieger kill the rat or does no, it happen off screen? It happens off screen. It's just like the rat's just do 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 and then he drops Ethan. And then the rats. And then done. in the background yes. of the shots, you can see the dead rat. <laughs> what did he? How do you think he killed the rat? Like with his head, or like how does the rat go like completely still? Right. Like it would make sense if like he let go of the rope with one of his hands to like stab the rat with <laughs> right. his knife, and then that's what caused the rope to slip. Or just but like we don't crack see any of that its happen. neck. But we never see him like like use his hands to murder the rat. Also, I'm really glad that they captured the true essence of the DC area by having a rat in a high-tech security <laughs> area. Like, the rats win here. Yeah, I always Authentic. wave to them. Nick caught a mouse in the apartment while I was at the office recently and called me, and I almost cried and felt sick, and I wasn't even at home. So, like, that whole idea of him just killing a rat so easily... It's so foreign from my experience. And there's no blood. It's just the rat's just, like, done. Even though, according <laughs> to one article I read, the most humane way to get rid of a mouse, like, kill a mouse is through, I can't remember, it was, like, rapid cervical separation, a.k.a. snapping its neck. Yikes. Jesus. Well, I guess that's what Krieger did. Yeah. All right, does this take us to your third point? <laughs> I think it can. So yeah, him and Luther meet. They meet on the train with Krieger um, with... Why can I never remember Jem's wife's name? Claire. Um, They meet with Claire and, you know, him and Luther, a little flattery, a little flirting. He's heard of him. There's all these... Yeah, was, was Luther disavowed for hacking NATO? Yeah, I think so. With all of these great, like, nicknames that he called, like, what did he say? that Don't they call you, like the lord of the net or like phineas freak or something i'm like this is blatant flirting 
blatant. <laughs> Look, uh, I just can't hack my way inside. See, there's no modem access to the mainframe. It's in what we call the standalone. Which means I'd have to be physically at the terminal. Relax, Luther. It's much worse than you think. Yeah, it's like job flirting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, who doesn't want to work with somebody who's su- super good at what they do? Yeah. And then Krieger's just there. I think you're right, Mark. He is like genuinely just annoying. He's like an annoying presence on the mission. <laughs> but they need a fourth guy. Like, they need the hands. Yes. You know, I feel like the CIA shouldn't have a knock list with everyone <laughs> in one computer file. Well, we know there are different regional lists because right. originally John Voigt promised to just get the Europe list. And when Cruz comes to her, she's like, you got to get me all of them. Like, I don't want to do this piecemeal anymore. <laughs> yeah. How do you think they break it up? Like, because this, this was the Eastern European list. How many lists do you think there are? How granular do they get? I feel like the most secret one would be the US list. Because it shouldn't exist. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so they pull off the mission. Luther does a great job. Yes, of course. And so you get the moment where Krieger thinks he has the knock list, but truly it's Luther that Ethan entrusts it with because everyone else is terrible and Luther is all he has. I want you to hold on to it. What makes you trust me? Because if you knew what you were getting into, you never would have done it. I'm not going to let this get out in the open. Exactly. It's your job tomorrow on the train. Don't let this knock list get out in the open. And because Ethan is good at close-up magic. Like, <laughs> yes. sleight of hand. <laughs> With like a- I feel like that should come up more. We should have more scenes throughout the franchise of Ethan, like, Doing pulling magic. nickels out of people's ears. <laughs> and it's, like, a pretty sizable disc. It's not small. It's impressive <laughs> magic. Yeah, it's pretty good. But I would look, in Mission Impossible 2, it's a John Woo movie. He should have made doves fly out of his coat. <laughs> if in Dead Reckoning it opens with him undercover as a magician at the Magic Castle, I think that would be the best opening you could have. That should have been his cover story job in Mission Impossible 3 when he's meeting Michelle Monaghan's friends. And they're like, what do you do? He's like, I'm a birthday magician. <laughs> it honestly would have been. That would have been a great callback. Yeah. So yeah, he does a little magic and he gives the real knock list to Luther. And I think he says to him something like, I can trust you because you're like, if you really knew what you were getting into, you would have never said yes to this. Like, if you knew we were stealing the knock list, you would not have been on board. Right. But then it's like Luther signs up to do incredibly stupid stuff with Ethan for every other movie that goes after this. Well, because now we trust him. Right. They're in love now. Well, he's also used to getting disavowed. <laughs> right. Which- is important. His daily disavowal. It comes day. with the territory. <laughs> daily disavowal. How long until a man like that breaks? <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I I feel like before I get, we get to the last point, I want to talk more about the train sequence, which is just one of my favorite action sequences ever. It's so cool. It's great. And they really got the TGV, which is France's high-speed train, Originally, they said no, and then Tom Cruise took the directors out to dinner and was like, why don't you let us use this train? Tom Cruise, problematic fave. I learned that um, the German state of Bavaria banned the screening of this film because the like president of Bavaria was 
staunch anti-Scientologist before it was cool. Yeah, there was kind of controversy throughout Germany about this. And, like, the State Department wound up criticizing Germany for this because John Travolta successfully argued to Clinton that it was religious discrimination. Wow. <laughs> I have nothing I just to think say that's that. so funny. <laughs> Yeah, the Church of Scientology published an open letter to Helmut Kohl in a bunch of newspapers. Like, this is an international incident. But also, he was right. Yeah. Wow, that is... I did not know that. I'm learning so many facts about Mission Impossible, which is the real reason I love to come on this show. It's just a lot We love stuff. to have you. <laughs> um, but I love it. And I also, like... I always think, though, when I see the scene, is that the gum should have exploded faster. It explodes, like, instantly in the scene with the fish tanks in the restaurant, but we get, like, a little bit of time with the helicopter. Doesn't it need, like, water to activate or something? That would work. Maybe. So maybe it had to get, like, dripped on. (laughs) Sweaty in his palms before he could... Yeah. I like that. I just love that scene so much, and it just makes no sense, and it's great, and that's what I'm here for when it comes to Mission Impossible. But it, even still, it is a helicopter chasing a train through the channel, and it is still small scale compared to, right. like, a rogue nation <laughs> set piece. Right. But you can see the early beginnings of something big <laughs> coming. So I think that leaves us at our last point. Which is what's necessary for every great romance, the happily ever after, and seven more movies. And I guess, well, Dead Reckoning is two parts, but... Jeez. You, Luther, being off the disavowed list. Hey, I'm the flavor of the month. <laughs> Why don't you come back with me? I just, I just don't know why I'd be doing it. Gotta go catch my flight. So how's it feel to be a solid citizen again? Man, I don't know. being disreputable. Well, Luther, if it makes you feel any better, I'm always thinking that way. I don't know about how happy a lot of this ever after is. They're alive. Well, Luther gets, re- <laughs> Luther gets re-avowed. That's true. Yeah, and then probably disavowed about ten more times before Mission Impossible 2 even starts. <laughs> I'm trying to think. He would certainly be disavowed in Ghost Protocol because the president invokes Ghost Protocol and everyone gets disavowed. Ghost Protocol should have been invoked the day after the IMF was founded. (laughs) But I don't know that Luther has been disavowed in any of the others. Maybe in Fallout. I think in Fallout. I'm pretty sure in Fallout. But you know, it's like, that's their thing. That's Ethan Luther's thing, you know? Like, Benji has certainly been disavowed (laughs) a number of times. But that's because it's fun to watch Simon Pegg panic. (laughs) I think it's a happily ever after. You know, yeah, they, definitely. They don't die. They have a little more fun together. A little disavow here or there. You know, <laughs> no big deal. <laughs> Ving Rames likes to say that Tom Cruise decided to make him a millionaire. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Because no other character is in all the movies. There's really no reason at the end of this movie to think that Luther would be a recurring character in a bunch of sequels. But for whatever reason, Cruise was like, this is how we anchor Ethan as a human, is he's got this one relationship. Well, it's like everyone else in this movie that he has a friendly relationship with turns out to be a spot, like a double agent. So it makes sense that all he's left with is Ving Rhames. I suppose so. 
And I think that's just, that's the greatest love story of Mission Impossible. So do we find the romance of Mission Impossible (laughs) believable? I do. I do too. In the context of these movies, yes, it makes perfect sense. (laughs) What do you mean in the context of these movies? Like, if every day, you know, your friends are dying, your enemies are dying, like, you have the one person in your life who's loyal, it would be somebody who's gone on all these missions with you. So I think it's pretty reasonable. So where are you going to rate this out of 10? Ethan and Luther? Or the romance of Mission Impossible, 1996. Which for me, and you can say what you want to do, for me includes the Phelps family (laughs) drama. I feel like everything you're saying is trying to like push me away from the one true love of Ethan and Luther. I want you to do whatever you want to do. I'm informing you of things that will factor into my decision, which doesn't need to be your decision. Right, just things I should be aware of. I'm going to... I'll give it, like, a seven and a half. All right. Mark, what are you thinking? Uh, I don't know. Including the Claire and Jim relationship, which is so unexplained, I'm going down to a a six. I was also going to go six, because, yeah, the Claire and Jim thing, clearly they, as a married couple, (laughs) conspire to get out of the IMF and get a lot of money, and who cares how many people are killed in the process. And then as part of it, as part of this plan, she is supposed to, like, flirt with Ethan? I, th- I don't know. It's weird. I think it only really goes down for them when Jim double crosses her. It's pretty romantic and okay until that point. Yeah. I mean, but yeah. I I also defended on the episode where I came in for the mummy, Anox and Moon and the mummy, so. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just like, it works for them. They're in it together, but then he double crosses her, so it's it's over. It's done. And he kills her, so. That really doesn't work. Do you think any of these people are dateable? Luther, obviously. <laughs> Luther's the best. Luther, Luther yes. is the best option. We have a long-running series explaining why Ethan Hunt is not dateable. <laughs> it's like the text of the series at this point. Yes. Yeah, definitely wouldn't. I think it's... Yeah, it's just Luther. It's just Luther. Because, like, the Phelpses are bad people. and. Ethan, like we said, you just, you can't date Ethan Hunt. I do like saying Hunt and thinking about Alec Baldwin just spitting it out the way that, like, only he can. He's just got that Hunt! <laughs> I also It's very Lemon! <laughs> I also think, though, I noticed this when I watched it this time. Kittredge, I love the way he says every word. It's, like, so overpronounced and, like, seductive in a way. Every word is separated. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I really enjoyed that, and I hope that it's the same in Dead Reckoning. I like Zerny basically all the time, but I love him in this movie. I'm so excited that he's back. Is Kittredge dateable? I don't know. Um, I There's not a lot of reason to think that he's not, except that, like, if you were like, I don't want to date anybody who works in the U.S. <laughs> intelligence community. Yeah, that's one reason I'm struggling with one of our next questions. Yeah, so Mark, who would you date in Mission Impossible? I don't know, because they're all, like, criminals or work for a criminal organization, (laughs) a.k.a. the IMF. So I'm leading towards um, Ethan Hunt's mom. I was going to say, you could could date Donnelly, the vomit guy? I'd rather go with just Ethan Hunt's mom. She's a nice lady who lives on a farm and gets falsely arrested for dealing meth. I'm going with Luther. He's cool. He's great. He's 90s Ving Rhames. Right. He's reliable. Yeah. I'm with it. 
I feel like he could like carry me around in one of his hands. <laughs> it would be very comforting. Melissa, do you think we need a Mission Impossible stage musical? I don't think we need it. But if we were to have it, it should be called Ethan on the Hunt. That's just my, just throwing that out there. Look, we have Miss Saigon, so we know you can get a helicopter on a Broadway <laughs> stage. What about the train, though? Puppets? <laughs> Repurpose the carriages from Hello, Dolly? I don't know. I'm just spitballing here. I mean, we, we have Starlight Express. It's just a bunch of actors on roller skates, but an actual helicopter. But no, I mean, obviously, we, we don't need a musical of this. Really, what makes this movie so special is the stunt stuff and particularly the way De Palma shoots it. You know, he's one of those guys who is so interested in, like, the camera as voyeur and, like, movies as the act of watching. And he has a lot of cool ideas with that, like, at the beginning in the embassy party where there are the glasses and so you're getting these POV shots of Ethan moving through the party. Like, that's what makes this movie cool. And this is one of, like, the coolest movies ever. Yeah. And this is the least emotionally reserved Mission Impossible movie. And it's not that emotional, and you kind of need that for a musical. Like, there's no point in this movie where you're like, this character is at such an extreme that they could burst out into song. <laughs> I think you could get a good, angry Zac Efron on the golf course scene out of Ethan Hunt after his team is killed. I mean, I would love to see Tom Cruise do that number. He's been talking about doing a musical, so maybe he should just do a, re- a remounting of High School Musical 2. In space. So that's a different project. No, but we can as just as merge them. <laughs> merge them together. I worry about that man. <laughs> He's feeling great. He's riding high. You know, he was an Oscar nominee last year. I think he has a death wish. He's going to make the space movie. He wants to make a musical. He wants to make a movie about his Tropic Thunder character. Uh, he said The Flash was a great time at the movies. Jesus. So it seems like he's very normal right now. <laughs> Tropic Thunder was so bad. I don't think I've seen it all the way through. I think I've never seen it. I think I've seen the clips of him in it more than I've seen like of the actual movie. You mean you don't want to watch Robert Downey Jr. in blackface yeah, for two hours? Right. It doesn't really it's not really, you know, pulling me in with that. <laughs> That's not really brought up a lot these days. <laughs> Yo, know, it's not like Downey is in movies these days. Oppenheimer. Oh, he is in Oppenheimer. I always forget about that. Yeah. That'll be the first time I see him since Doolittle. Wow, I can't believe you saw Doolittle. I saw Doolittle opening weekend. <laughs> okay. <laughs> if there's ever a Doolittle 2, it's squarely on your shoulders. It would be called Too Little, and it will not happen. But I think that's it for Mission Impossible. Melissa, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I can't wait to come back and talk about a different movie and also Vanessa Hudgens at some point. <laughs> Maybe we should just, like... <laughs> Cut to the chase and do a Vanessa Hudgens movie. Has Vanessa Hudgens ever been in a Lifetime Movie Network original film? She should be. She definitely has been, right? I don't know. Next week, we're talking about Shall We Dance, a 2000s Richard Gere movie. Don't know much about it, but... Important to note, it is Shall We Dance question mark. That's true, yes. Shall We Dance with no question mark, the 1930s Fred Astaire movie. Yeah, that movie's okay. I've seen that movie. There's a good roller skating dance number in it, but... It's fine. No, we're doing the Richard Gear one, so we'll see you next week. Until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Level Up Pod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at leveluppod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe, especially on Apple Podcasts and Spotify to help other people find the show. 
Last question, Melissa. What is the best piece of dating advice we got from Mission Impossible? Before you say anything important to someone you're potentially seeing, check if they're wearing a fake mask. <laughs> just kind of pull up their just face. Tug a, just give them a little cheek tug and then you're, you see if they're real or not. My advice, you can't find true love until you're disavowed. Ooh, that's beautiful. <laughs> My advice, uh, trying to date your boss's wife, probably not going to pan out. (laughs) Fair enough. All right, there you go. Until next time, I'm a ginger. And I'm gay. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye. Bye. You can't fight the friction.